Hello and welcome to Women on the Line, Community Radio's national women's current affairs programme. Produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. This case is changing how Indian country will look. We want to change the way our lives are controlled by the United States government. Eloise Cobell was a Native American tribal elder, activist and banker. While treasurer of the Blackfeet tribe in Montana in the United States, she showed up many financial irregularities and deep mismanagement in trust funds held by the US government. This week's show is about her case action lawsuit, which started in 1996 and settled in 2010, where Cobell recovered royalties for 500,000 individual Native Americans in a settlement worth $3.4 billion. Cabell died in 2011, but last month, Cabell's work on behalf of Native Americans was honoured by the award of a posthumous Presidential Medal of Freedom by US President Barack Obama. And now, only a few weeks later, at the time of making the show, Incoming U.S. President Donald Trump's advisors are suggesting he will put the oil, gas and coal-rich native lands into private ownership, just as the Dakota Access Pipeline protesters get a success at Standing Rock. There is more struggle ahead in the U.S., and this talk by Eloise Cobell hopefully will inspire. It dates from 2005 when she spoke at the National Network of Grantmakers. I grew up on the Blackfeet Indian Reservation, and my father moved my mother when he married her out to his allotment from the Dawes Act. He built a small little lean-to and began the family there. There was nine children, and we lived out on the reservation. We didn't have running water, no TVs, but our relatives and friends, our neighbors, would come and visit and always talk about that they couldn't get their money. Well, I saw the farmer take off a truckload of grain off of my my property, but I don't get any money. You know, I have oil wells, but I don't get any money. And being a very young person at that time, I had not a clue what it was all about. But you know how you store something in the back of your head, and then all of a sudden it resurfaces? Fast-forwarding my life, I ended up becoming the treasurer of the Blackfeet Indian Tribe in the late 70s, and I had an accounting background, and uh, I started getting statements in from the Department of Interior, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, on the tribal trust accounts, and I began reviewing them, and I couldn't believe that we were earning a deficit interest, and I knew, according to the regulations, that the government could only invest our monies into guaranteed securities. So the only way that you could earn um, deficit interest if if the government was going broke. And uh, I knew that wasn't happening. And so I began writing letters. And finally, there was one congressman out of Oklahoma whose constituency was really affected by this entire issue. And he began holding hearings. And every time we'd have a hearing and go in and testify, we'd find out more and more information. And it was through that process we were able to get the United States government to mandate 
that um, the Department of Interior had to reconcile, audit, and certify all the tribal trust accounts and individual Indian trust accounts. And, and I think it's really important to understand that this trust was forced on people. The Dawes Act took land that was already owned by Indian tribes but there was a group of senators in Washington that called themselves the Friends of the Indians, and they wanted more and more control of Indian land. And if it stayed in a total ownership by the tribe, then they knew that they could not get control of it. So they created the Dawes Act and divided the existing land that was owned, for instance, at Blackfeet, into parcels of land distributed to individual Indians to make them farmers. Uh, Senator Dawes said, we've got to teach these Indians about the sunshine. We've got to tell them that they've got to put seeds in the ground and let the sun shine on the seeds so they can all become farmers and prosperous. <clears throat> well, how would you ever even start? You didn't have the equipment, you didn't have the capital, and they, they were very uh, strategic about the allocation of this land. They would allocate a piece of property like at Blackfeet up near the mountains and the other piece at the eastern edge of the Blackfeet Reservation, which would be 100 miles apart. How could you even get to that particular location to understand what it was all about. But basically, uh, the Department of Interior came in and said, okay, you Indians are all stupid. We started our trial like this. We had a quote from the secretary at that particular time that said, you Indians are all stupid. You don't understand. So we are going to manage this trust for you to the highest fiduciary standards. <laughs> I found out that the United States Government Department of Interior didn't even have an accounting system. They had never, ever audited these funds from 1887 forward. And we were able to get an allocation of money, so the Department of Interior was mandated that they had to go in and look at these accounts. And what they found out immediately through this huge accounting firm that they hired was that, my God, um, these tribal trust accounts are in such poor shape that we can only go back 20 years. And we can't do an accounting. We can only do a reconciliation of what the government says came in and what the government says went out. But if you think the tribal trust accounts are in poor shape, the individual Indian accounts are even worse. So as a result, they just put that on the back burner. But I remembered the days when I was a young girl and I heard everybody talking about, I can't get my money, and why can't I get my money? I remembered, as treasurer of the Blackfeet tribe, many elders coming in asking me to help them, to write letters for them. I can't get my money. I need money for my kids to buy them school clothes. My husband is sick. I need to take him to the hospital. I remembered that. And so I continued to ask Congress, well, what are we going to do about the individual Indian accounts? I continued to ask 
the Department of Interior, what are we going to do about the individual Indians that own these lands and this is their money? What are we going to do about that? Because I knew that the tribes had accountants, they had lawyers, and they could fend for themselves. But many people in our Indian communities didn't know how to fight back. I was really a Pollyanna. I, I guess I was, I was raised on the Blackfeet Indian Reservation, and I didn't have a, not a lot of experience in Washington. Uh, when I went to Washington, I remember I was going, I said, if I can only get to the president. I pounded on all the doors. Finally, one point in time, some really uh, smarty with the Department of Interior said, well, why don't you just sue us? So you know what I did? I sued him. <laughs> I didn't have the money, of course, but I was fortunate enough to be on the board of Women in Philanthropy. And uh, we used to talk about, you know, what's important in your life, what's going on in your career, what's going on in your, in your personal life, if you want it to share. And I, you know, I, I had no personal life. I was fighting the United States government for an accounting. And so every time I talked, I talked about the case. And so everybody was so engrossed in this case. They just became just part of my whole team and would have quarterly meetings. I'd fly to New York and everybody would just forget everybody else and they'd say, okay, tell us what happened, you know. I said we were more popular than Survivor. It was, it was so <laughs> great. So when I finally drew the line in the sand, I said I was going to sue the United States government. I didn't have a cent. And then this one uh, group of women said, we will hold a forum of funders, and we will help you. We will help you try to raise the funds to bring on this lawsuit. I raised $11 million, which is not nearly enough. You know, ran out of money, you know, quite some time ago because we just didn't expect it to go this long. Um, <clears throat> We haven't paid attorneys um, from 1999 forward. And when you're working on an issue like this, everybody has got to understand it's not a get-rich one. It's about how you believe in this country and how it should work. And that's, I think, what the dedication of the attorneys and the accountants are that have been working on this case. Um, I went out and I found the best financial attorney in this country. He had never worked with Indians before. That was really important to me because of the fact is that when you're dealing, and excuse if there's any politicians, with those sleaze bags in Washington, D.C., you have got to make sure that nobody trades you off for something else. So I wanted to make sure that I hired somebody that was only dedicated to this case. Dennis thought he was going in to a meeting with um, East Indians. He thought they'd all have turbans because <laughs> people think we're poor. And he was shocked because he knew what happened when people mismanaged and lost records and stole records in a, in a private trust, in the private sector. And um, we know who's getting rich off of these broken systems. We know who's at the trough, and it certainly isn't us Indians. It's big oil. It's people that have been able to use these resources for free for 100 plus years. And that's why 
the United States government would dig in so deep against us. I mean, we know for a, a fact that the Attorney General, the White House, everybody's involved now. They have dug in so deeply. And our attorneys, they're there for the commitment. Otherwise, we wouldn't have them. And we have five attorneys. And we're up against armies. And that's why I continue to stay, say the stars are aligned for us because we're winning every single court case because we are so right. And so this should be like a topic that everybody understands because I think it affects not only Native people, it affects all of you in your communities. If the government is allowed to behave like this, get away with this, what will happen? We've got to make the United States government accountable. Across Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line on the Community Radio Network. You can find us online at 3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line or connect with the program on Facebook or on Twitter. This week's show features an interview with Eloise Cobell, who died in 2011, but last month was awarded posthumously the Presidential Medal of Freedom by by US President Barack Obama. This audio is from 2005, during the case action lawsuit, which was finally settled in 2010. So I went to Washington the weekend before June 10th, 1996, and I went for a walk and because I was, I was pretty nervous. And um, I walked up to the Lincoln Memorial, and I was looking down at government. Oh, my God. Cement buildings after cement buildings. And I said, oh, my God, I'm taking on the United States government. And I just got goosebumps all over. And, like, I ran back to my room, and I, uh, I just said, you know, I can't do this. I can't do it. I am so scared and so I picked up the phone and I called a friend and um, my friend said I said you know I can't do this I'm so frightened and I know the government you know and that was one of the problems I think that many of the people when I was a young person um, couldn't go any further to ask the questions where where is my money where you know how do I get my money because they were frightened of being retaliated against Um, and my friend said to me Um, Well, Eloise, if you don't do it, who will? And I thought, you know, you're right. I hung up the phone. I've never looked back since. Let's talk about some of the victories that we've won. Right off the bat, we held two secretaries in contempt of court, Secretary Babbitt of Interior and Treasury Secretary Rubin. They were held in contempt of court for destroying documents. And then we we were able to hold uh, Secretary Norton in contempt of court. She appealed, and the appellate court came down with the decision and said that we should have held her in criminal contempt instead of civil contempt. But the sad part is, is she got away with it. 
I mean, she got away with not having documents. But, you know, there are armies and armies of attorneys that are against us. When we walk into a courtroom, we have um, the uh, Department of Interior attorneys, we have all the Department of Justice attorneys, we have all the Department of Treasury attorneys, and then through Congress, every person that we've charged them in contempt of court, we haven't went to trial yet, we're able to go out and hire their own private attorney firm to represent their misdealings with us. We all know what happened to Enron, WorldCom, is that they went straight to jail. And in our situations, do you know what happened to the secretaries that were held in contempt of court? They were fined $600,000, um, but who paid it? Us taxpayers paid it. Can you believe that? Why isn't people all excited about this? You know, why in there, when there's cuts over health and there's cuts here, they're hiring armies of attorneys to fight. So there's no sanctions against these people that are doing this horrible injustice to the poorest people in this country. And what are we doing about it? Why are we getting so lazy? Where are those buses? Let's head to Washington. You know, even my own people, um, there is so many things that we need to expose about what's happening with the mismanagement of these trusts. I just visited a place in Navajo um, a couple weeks ago going out to update everybody on this, this lawsuit and there was like um, four gas wells in the backyard of these people's land and um, they were receiving $154 a year. And um, they said since the lawsuit was filed, then it's been up to around 900 a year, but we know that it's much more money. But they negotiated these leases. Sometimes people would have a thumbprint um, on a lease, and it would be uh, for 100 years and just a thumbprint because people didn't understand. Some portions of our case will go far enough back to get, for instance, a piece of property like the lady where the oil was coming out of her land and all of a sudden it, it switched off and they didn't own it anymore and how much was owed, you know, millions of dollars. Um, we can go back to that piece of property when it was owned by that individual and then and come forward and that's part of our case. We were able to win every single part of this case, but the, the first part that we had to prove was breach of trust. The government argued that they didn't have to give us an accounting because this trust that was set up, it wasn't like a private trust. We don't have to have the same standards as other trusts do. But the district court ruled in our favor and that common trust law standards prevail. And the appellate court ruled even further. The appellate court said common trust law standards prevail. And you're going to go back from 1887 forward with an accounting. <clears throat> Immediately, but immediately, you just, this, is, this is what happens in, in Washington, but immediately the Department of Interior ran to Congress. Remember when they were having all the fires and they were allocating money to fight the fires? They added a rider on that says that they could stay the accounting. And so they approved that rider and they were able to stay the accounting until December of 2004. And then the judge, who's an excellent fair judge, ruled that 
they have to come forward with with the accounting plan to account for monies. Well, the accounting issue is a huge issue in our case. It was from 1887 forward. Well, we know they destroyed documents. We know they get up before the court and lie. And they'll say, oh, well, we can, we can do a sampling. You know, well, we all know what they're going to do. They entered reports to the judge and said, we fixed the systems. We fi all of a sudden, their inspector general, their own inspector general, comes out with a report that says, my god, these security systems are so bad. Anybody can hack into them. I mean, anybody can hack into these systems. They can move things around. They can move Indian money around. They can move it. I'm a banker. I know that there is like 2,000 hits a minute people trying to access financial information. So here you have a system with absolutely no firewalls, nothing to protect these assets. And then they say, no money is missing Congress. You know, we can't find evidence of anything missing. We needed to do an alternative methodology of accounting. We needed to hire the best oil and gas accountants, we needed the resource accountants that are out there for timber, for everything, because we had to recreate what happened. And fortunately, in 97, there was a man in New York City that picked up the New York Times and was reading the story about the MacArthur Award that I received. And he calls his, at that time, program officer, who happens to be in this room, and said, do you know this Indian woman from Blackfeet who just received this MacArthur Award? And um, she said, she said, no, but I read one of the most powerful decline proposals from her. <laughs> and he said, pack your bags, we're going to Browning, Montana. They came to Browning and I was so scared because I hadn't really met with anybody that was a funder right in my home turf and he sits across the table from me and said, if we were to give you some money, uh, what would that be for? And I said, um, for accounting, I need to hire accountants. And he says, um, well, how much do you need? Underneath my, my knees were knocking and everything. It's like, how much do I ask? It's like, about a million dollars. You know, I just said it really fast. And it's like, okay, you know, and left. And pretty soon he called me and said, well, I know you need more than that, so we're going to maybe give you two million. And I was like, oh my God. It was just like having a heart attack. <coughs> but that sacred relationship is the most powerful thing that anybody could ever have because that foundation stayed with us through the thick and thin of what we've been through and was there to support us. And if you don't have that, then we could never be where we are today. We could never have the whole United States government in Washington, D.C. talking 90% of their time about the Cabal case. What are we going to do about the Cabell case? You know, we found the government in breach of trust. We won accounting from 1887 forward. We won where they have to fix all the accounting systems. They have to put systems in place. We won every single thing. And, you know, I'm going to tell you, this, this lawsuit is about three simple things that nobody here will ever have to file a lawsuit for. Because I know, I'm a banker. I know how trusts 
are managed, is that first <clears throat> we have to compel the United States government to put accounting systems in place because they manage our money and our lives. The second part of this case is to give an accounting to Indian people so they know what they own, what are their assets. The third part of this case is to make restitution. It is not about damages. It's when you adjust those account balances, then give the money back to the people who own it. That is how simple this case is. That's what we're fighting for. We have won every single one of these victories, but have they done anything? No, they have not. Senator McCain, who I thought was really my good friend, um, he introduced the bill to settle this case because it's just taking too much time. I mean, this Cabal case is just taking too much time. We got to get rid of this. We got to settle it. Well, we're not the people that are the wrongdoers in this case. It's the government, you know. And he introduced this piece of legislation that took away everything that we won in court. It had a money figure like like 11 digit figure and we're like with X's 11 digits okay that was supposed to satisfy us we're only going to do an accounting from 1994 forward after I read that bill I said my god this is the Baker massacre the Calvary came into the Blackfeet and said okay we're going to all keep you safe and you just got to surrender and thank god um, my great grandfather who was mountain chief um, uh, was not going to surrender and he was hiding out in the mountains and he was not going to uh, conform to what the government wanted us to be. So um, they were able to get other um, chiefs to say, okay, yes, and we'll give you this piece of paper, and if you hold this piece of paper up, um, the government will not bother you. And they believed. Here came the cavalry led by uh, Major Baker. Chief Heavy Runner ran out, and he held the piece of paper up and waved it, and they came in and they killed them all anyway. That was Eloise Cobell, Native American activist and banker, who successfully challenged the US government in a case action lawsuit to recover mismanaged trusts, worth $3.4 billion. This talk was from 2005, but the case was finally settled in 2010, with settlement payouts beginning this year. Payouts only represent 2% of the money taken. For more information, see www.cobellsettlement.com. Thank you to Lisa Rudman of Making Contact Women's Desk for the recording, and to Frida Worden at Wings and the Community Radio Exchange. Women on the Line is Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs Programme. It's produced and presented by a range of women broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We'd love to hear your thoughts or comments about the programme, so please send an email to our new email address, womenontheline at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. 